You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. Joining me today is Radhika Dutt. Radhika is an entrepreneur and seasoned product leader. She is also the author of the upcoming book, Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. Radhika has participated in four acquisitions as a result of the product she has built, including two acquisitions of companies she founded. She also speaks nine languages and is currently learning her 10th. Wow. Welcome to the Product Age, Radhika. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. And I'm feeling pretty under-accomplished with your uh, 10 languages. Tell me a little bit why you learned so many languages. Uh, It's something that, you know, language, I feel like it's a window into cultures. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience, given that I've lived in different places, just picking up the languages along the way. Um, So yeah, it, it became a hobby along the way at some point. Fantastic. Do you have a favorite language that you like to speak? That's a hard one to answer because each one has, it presents such an interesting window into culture. It's really hard to pick a favorite, but I'll give you two snippets. Um, it fascinates me, for example, that in Japanese, you can't say, I disagree. Like there, there are no words to say, I disagree. Um, or for ex- and, and that tells you a little bit about the culture. Or for instance, in Italian, um, you know, there isn't a phrase to say, oh, it'll all work out or it'll be okay. Uh, You know, complaining is kind of the national sport in Italy. And you can tell that from the fact that that phrase doesn't exist. Like you can concoct it and literally translate it, but it would just sound very awkward. Fascinating. I didn't know that about um, Italian and Japanese. They're fascinating. So Radhika, I'm really excited to be discussing radical product thinking with you and how it can help product folks stay vision driven to build successful products systematically. But before we jump into that, do you want to give us a little bit of a background sort of to your career to date? Yeah, so my um foray into product management began sort of with entrepreneurship. So uh, after I graduated uh, from MIT, I had my first startup uh, and we started it, you know, while we were still in school. And this was during the dot-com bubble uh, in 99, You know, and I feel like that was the start of my learning about product diseases. Because in this first company that we started, you know, we said, oh, we're going to be a services company. Why? Because we wanted to explore different uh, use cases and learn about different markets while being a services company. And then we'd find the killer app. Our vision was to revolutionize wireless. And so we were going to find the killer app by trying out all these different things. And if I translate it to today's speak, right, what we were actually saying was, oh, we're going to iterate to find product market fit. And that was the product disease that we ran into, which I now call pivotitis. Um, 
So that was um, the first startup that we started. We made mistakes along the way. Uh, and what we ended up building, though, was still interesting. It was an amazing technology. We basically built in 2000 what you would now call an early version of Siri. But our many iterations that we did burned through our funding that we had uh, secured at the time. Um, and we didn't have a life-changing exit, although we had a very interesting technology. So that was kind of the first time I started a company and realized, huh, you know, just iteration alone isn't enough. Um, and from these mistakes, um, you know, I, I worked at other companies. Um, my next, the next company that I worked at was uh, at Avid Technology, building our broadcast uh, division up. Um, and which was a very interesting and very different experience in terms of how to build products. We were more vision driven. Um, and so along the way, you know, so I've worked in many different um, areas. So wireless was Lobby 7, my first startup. Then it was Avid and movies and broadcast. Um, it was then working at Starrent and Telecom, which was then acquired by Cisco. Um, and then after that, I had uh, gone into advertising, uh, into ad tech, um, and then into robotics and warehouse automation. So basically, my career has been that I've worked in many different industries, and I've seen so many product diseases across all of these, and which is what brings us to today and radical product thinking, because I kept seeing the same set of product diseases. Fantastic. What an interesting and varied career you've had. And that leads in perfectly to my next question. Radical product thinking, what is it? So it's a methodology for for building vision-driven products. Uh, it's for being vision-driven. The way I explain it, right, is when we have used lean and agile, very often it's given us the illusion that you can discover your vision along the way. We think, you know, let's just try things, see what works, um, and we'll figure out, you know, where we're going. And that's the problem with lean and agile, right? Like they really help us build things faster and innovate faster, but that's the equivalent of having a fast car. Um, so to be able to get to where you're going, you still need to know where it is that we want to go. And that's where Lean and Agile don't help us enough. We really have to first have a clear vision for where we're going. And Lean and Agile can help us get there faster. But that vision has to come from us. And how can we be more vision-driven so that we are systematically able to translate that vision into action? That's radical product thinking. So radical product thinking helps you define your vision, strategy, strategy, your, how do you prioritize, and that helps you translate that into iterations uh, and into lean and agile thinking, basically. Right. Okay. So do you feel then that a lot of product companies and, and product managers are, are perhaps missing that, that vision-driven approach at the moment? Exactly. And why is that, right? Uh, it's often because we think we want to be data-driven. And being data-driven sounds like it's the right thing to do. Um, but in the process of measuring data, what happens? When we say, oh, you know, I'm going to use lean and I'm going to be data-driven, what we end up measuring, like in terms of data, is stuff that is most common or popular to measure. So for example, when we're being data-driven, um, we'll do lots of A-B testing and know kind of how to optimize our product. We might be looking at 
customer engagement as the metric or revenues, et cetera. But if we think about it, right, all of these metrics are short-term metrics. And so in a sense, using these the lean and agile, we're in effect optimizing for the short term. Um, and this is where it's really different from being vision-driven. When you're vision-driven, the mindset is different. We say, what's the end goal and where are we trying to get to? And every step is to make sure we're getting towards that end goal. And so all the data that we're measuring, and which is what, you know, those are the mantras that we've learned about product management. Like, yeah, we have to be data-driven. But being data-driven, et cetera, it's like asking for directions on a road trip. You kind of have to know where you're going to be able to ask for those directions. Um, and, and that's the piece that's kind of missing today. Absolutely. And it's interesting you bring up the, the data-driven concept because that is something that um, in my company, Middleton Executive, when we're recruiting product professionals for, for startups and high-growth companies, they're increasingly asking for people that have that data-driven mindset and have worked with um, data principles and data practices. And, and it all does connect and I guess what you're saying is if you're constantly chasing those and and you're not focusing on the long-term vision well then yeah you're just constantly iterating and I love that um pivotitis um concept how can product professionals ensure then that they are being more vision driven and that they're not losing sight of the vision and getting distracted by other shiny things along the way so one of the things that I often find uh, in terms of having a good vision is that we have to start by unlearning a lot of the myths about what is a good vision. So, you know, we often think that a good vision, and this is what we've been taught, right? It's that a good vision has to be broad, aspirational. Um, it has to sound heroic and truly inspire people. And the reality is that a vision of that sort um, tends to be something where we think a slogan is a good vision because it's memorable uh, and, and is big and broad, et cetera. But when we do that, um, we often create a vision that means anything can fit under that vision. Um, it no longer acts like a clear pointer, a, a clear North Star that guides us. Um, so to give you an example, um, Snap has the vision, um, which is, to help humanity make progress by empowering people to express themselves. And I often give the example that, you know, empowering people to express themselves is, you know, post-its. That could be like the vision for a company making post-its. It could be the vision for my kid's piano teacher because she's helping them ex express themselves and in, in that way, helping humanity make progress. But like anything goes under that vision. So it's not a good vision. So. If we want to be vision-driven, we first have to have a new mindset about a vision, that a vision has to be really detailed. Um, it has to answer questions such as, you know, whose world are we setting out to change? Um, what does that world look like? Meaning, you know, what's the problem that they are dealing with today? Um, why does that need to be solved? Because maybe it doesn't even need to be solved in some cases. And then finally, we can then answer, so how will you solve that problem? What does the world look like when you've solved that problem? And so, you know, once we have a vision that starts to get this level of uh, detail clarified, that's when we can start to become vision-driven. And it's the sort of alignment that we create within the team by discussing answers to these really profound questions that 
we can start to have a vision-driven approach. And so as part of radical product thinking, you know, what we realized is while this is easily said, sometimes it's really hard to do in a room when you get everyone together. Uh, I often call it the game of vision bingo, where, you know, you get together and talk about a vision, but you come out with something that sounds pretty much what you went in with. Um, so instead, the radical product thinking approach to vision gives you a fill-in-the-blank statement so that you can all align together by answering such questions. Okay. And to keep that front of mind for product professionals, how often do they need to revisit visions? Because I imagine, you know, you have product teams and they come up with the idea of what they want to work on. And I'm wondering how often the team then does come back together with their leaders to revisit that vision. Does that need to happen more frequently than perhaps it is at the moment? Yes, exactly. And right now, you know, we think of a vision as something you set it once and it remains the same forever. And that's one of the reasons we like to keep it broad. And it's just so counterproductive. So instead, right, if you're a small early stage startup, uh, you might want to visit your uh, revisit your vision statement, maybe even every month, because you're discovering so many new things about whether this is even the right thing to build. Um, if you're a mature company uh, that's been building a product for a long time, maybe it's, you know, once a year. Year. So it really depends on the maturity level of the product and the market that you're in. Um, and if we look at a situation like COVID, you know, where there is a significant market shift, we should all be looking at our vision statements and rethinking those and saying, you know, is this still valid? Yes, yes, absolutely. And if you're a product manager listening now and thinking, okay, well, you know, we probably haven't revisited our, our vision recently. How does a, a product professional that is, you know, embarking into their radical product thinking journey, how do they bring this to, to their company or, or their leaders? Yeah. So one of the ways I um, talk about doing this is, you know, talking about product diseases. So it's uh, if we think about our product, right, whenever um, it's only when someone recognizes that they have a need that you can then go solve that need. Without that need, it's really hard to bring a product to market. So it's kind of similar with the radical product thinking approach. If there's no recognition within the company that we have a problem, then it's really hard to bring in a new way of thinking. And so the first thing is, it's really helpful to talk about the product diseases that we are facing in our company. Um, and once you start labeling a problem and you can talk about it openly and in a way where you can be, you know, self-deprecating and, and put some humor into it, then it becomes easier to say, okay, so how do we fix this problem that we have? Because it's so common um, to find these product diseases across companies. And so um, I, I created this list of uh, seven uh, product diseases, um, and that's part of the book, but, um, you know, we can talk about product disease in a moment if you like. But basically, by looking at those product diseases, you can then say, oh, which one are we facing? And then how can we solve it? And then you come back to your vision um, and, and help bring about that alignment. Fantastic. And absolutely, I'd love to talk about product diseases. So you identified these diseases very early on in your entrepreneurial career. What, what do you mean when you talk about product diseases? Yeah, so it's basically where uh, good products go bad. Um, and it happens so often in companies where sometimes uh, one example of product disease I talk about often is strategic swelling, where product even starts out well. Um, it's actually 
doing really well. Customers love it. And then, you know, customers start adding fe uh, feature requests. So they say, well, if you just added this other feature, then, you know, we can use it also for doing blah. Uh, and another customer comes along and they will have another idea for how else they can use it. And so pretty much you're, you're adding more and more features. And over time, your product is trying to do everything for everyone. Um, and, and you kind of no longer recognize a product because it's so bloated. So that's strategic swelling. Um, Another really common example is uh, obsessive sales disorder, which is where, uh, which is one that you know I'll, I've definitely contributed to in a company, um, where, you know, this is where your salesperson comes to you and says, you know, we can win this marquee customer. All you have to do is just add this one custom feature, um, and then pretty soon, like you're just sitting with a stack of contracts, and your entire roadmap is driven by what your customers. Uh, have added on as custom features, right? And so those are all kind of diseases that happen when we accidentally become iteration-led instead of being vision-driven, uh, where we don't have a clear vision and a strategy that's driving our iterations, where we're becoming customer-driven as opposed to customer-led. Absolutely. And I see that a lot when I'm interviewing product professionals um, in Middleton Executive. They talk a lot about features and adding request from the customer. And I've done a previous episode on the product edge where we talked about killing features or killing products and, um, you know, knowing when to end the life of a product or a feature. And I've started involved, including that in a lot of my product interviews. And it's amazing how few product managers have that experience of knowing when to kill a feature or potentially a product. Do, do you find that yourself um, in your career? Absolutely. And there's so much FOMO, right? Because what if I kill this feature and there's this fear that you're going to miss out on something or someone's going to be unhappy? It, it's really hard to kill a feature once you've put it into the market. I, I so agree. Definitely. And as part of this, you also discuss unintended consequences of products and calling it digital pollution. Well, what do you mean by digital pollution? Yeah. So when we're iteration-led, right, in addition to product diseases, uh, another side effect is actually digital pollution. So this is the realization I've had in the last uh, maybe five to seven years that um, increasingly, just as the industrial growth led to environmental pollution, you know, this, the growth of tech companies in the digital era um, has been quite reckless at times. And that's led to what I've called digital pollution. So to give you specific examples, right, um, there are five types of digital pollution that I talk about in the book, but I'll mention just a couple right now. Um, one is the erosion of our information ecosystem. Um, and the example I like to give in this case is, you know, I was sitting in a taxi uh, once and I was chatting with the driver and our conversation turned to politics. And he started saying, you know, well, this politician said this and then this politician said this, but well, who knows what's actually true? And what was really interesting was he was one of those few people who was actually questioning what he was um, seeing on social media and online and saying, well, I don't know if it's actually true. Right? Whereas, and, and his point was, you know, years ago, I could look at the newspaper and um, I knew, I felt like I was getting facts. Now I don't know what's fact or not. And this is first coming from someone who's actually searching for facts. So the erosion of our information ecosystem is that 
information is so abundant, but the paradox is that it's still harder to find facts today than it was maybe 10 years ago. Um, and, and that's the um, that's one of the effects of digital pollution and a lot of the misinformation that we have out there. Um, another example that I talk about is the erosion of privacy, where, you know, we have come to expe expect that, you know, we have to give up our privacy and data to be able to get free services. And that's just kind of what's required. Um, and it's become so normalized that, you know, most people, they respond to privacy issues by saying, oh, well, at this point I've given up or, or worse yet, right, we say, oh, but at this point I have nothing to hide. And that's the part that worries me a lot, right? Because maybe your data and mine isn't that important right now. But if we think about, you know, journalists and whistleblowers, their data is really critical. Uh, and that's the data that can be used against them. But the thing is, right, if a product is available to people, you can't say that, oh, I'm going to preserve privacy for this journalist and this whistleblower and everyone else, your data will just harness away, right? It's either privacy for everyone or it's for no one. Um, and so this is the kind of digital pollution that slowly erodes democracy when we can't have access to information, when we can't have access to privacy. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, what we're creating slowly, whether it's through these or aspects like polarization, we're starting to fray the fabric of society. And so just as environmental pollution has, you know, gotten visibility finally, and we're recognizing how important it is, we have to recognize that digital pollution is also fraying the fabric of society to a point where it's not sustainable, right? We cannot keep building products the way we are today, uh, because of what we're seeing in society with populism, with polarization and radicalization, that we need to be more thoughtful and mindful of how we build products. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. It is so hard to find truth now and, and facts to the point where I watched a documentary a few weeks back and they were talking about these um, glossy magazines and how they have, you know, these celebrities on the front and all of this, you know, spin stories to, to sell. And that they're, they're photos from, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago of totally separate instances where people are just then Photoshopped together, making out that this is a, a real life scenario. And they were exposing that. And I was like, how can these magazines get away with, you know, overtly lying and manipulating the truth and um it's it's yeah it's so hard to find facts at the moment how how do we navigate that radica so the, you know one of the things uh, before we talk about how we navigate that even is the recognition of kind of why it even happens right um so what you just talked about is such a wonderful example because what happens with these magazines is they have to be louder than others. Um, and so each magazine, each app, every website, every influencer is trying to be louder than the next. And to be louder, we try to um, have a very simple sound bite that people can grasp, um, especially in the culture where, you know, um, like on YouTube, for example, people watch 11 seconds on average before moving on, right? Is it 11 or 19 seconds or something like that? Yes. But basically, in given such stats, um, everyone has to grab attention and it has to be the smallest possible soundbite. Um, and so we lose nuance in society. 
And that's the, the problem, right? When we lose nuance, um, it becomes so hard to grab or, or to, to gain information and knowledge. Um, and so how do we change that? I think that's one of the recognitions um, or what, that's some awareness that we need. Um, whether we are being allowed ourselves to be heard on social media um, or recognizing how this loudness from others is really affecting us um, and, and holding people accountable for, um, for actually talking about nuance as opposed to just putting sound bites out there. Um, there was a recent book I read, which was Why We Sleep. Um, and that book has done really well, phenomenally well, right? But what's interesting is I it said it, it stated so many things as fact. And I looked up the author afterwards on Wikipedia, and there was all this criticism about, you know, um, studies that he slightly misquoted. And what bothers me is, like, after reading that, now I feel like I no longer know what was true or not true out of that book. If this author had just shared the same thing with a little more nuance, I feel like I would have understood that, right? Um, but now people are trying to hold uh, or, or bring up these issues to say, well, you know, this is what happens when we're trying to publish books or publish articles, etc. There's this need to be loud and kind of say something that's not nuanced, but it can only come from um, accountability and transparency and holding people accountable for it. Yeah, definitely. So do you think if product professionals who are ultimately creating these products that the world's consuming, if they were to stay true to this vision-driven approach, do you think that would reduce the the amount of digital pollution that, that we're experiencing? It would, because in terms of translating your vision into action, it, if we take a vision-driven approach, it changes how we measure success. So today, you know, we use data to measure success. You know, if you've, we measure success by revenues or um, how many customers are using our website or app, et cetera. Right? So we often conflate usage with success. Um, and if we were to think about it differently, being vision-driven means saying, is our product bringing about the change we want to see in the world? And if it's not bringing about that change that we envision for the world, then it's not successful. Um, and, and, you know, the counter to that is if we are measuring the right things to understand whether a product is creating that change, then we can deem it successful, right? So it changes really what we measure of our products. And that's the piece that I really want to see us think about differently in terms of building our products, that we measure success differently, um, that it's not just based on revenues. And, you know, by the way, this is not to say that revenues are not important. I'm not trying to say that we need to be altruistic in building products. That's absolutely not the case um, because, you know, we have to run a business. We're not trying to be a charity um, and businesses touch many more lives than charities do. So I think there's a really important place for business. So we have to make money and we can be capitalists, but at the same time, we can think about, you know, is our product creating the change we want to see in the world? And we can never know that unless we start with a clear vision. So, you know, to me, the, the example that really stands out in my mind is Facebook. Um, it started with this vision of to create a world that's open and connected, right? And it sounds like a vision, except you kind of 
delve a little deeper into that and you say, well, wait a minute, what does an open and connected world look like actually? Mm-hmm. And without the detail behind what's the problem that that's solving, what does the world look like when it's all open and connected? We create a world that we don't really intend. Um, and that's why we need a vision-driven approach. Absolutely. And that's very similar to a conversation that I had on um, on this podcast with Anthony Murphy, where we were exploring exploring the unintended consequences of, of products. And, and we touched upon the question of, you know, should there be a Hippocratic oath for product managers, given the responsibility and magnitude of the impact your products can ultimately have on society um, and, and the world? And um, I know you're a, a big advocate of, of that. What are your thoughts around an, a Hippocratic oath for product professionals? Yeah, so I coined the term Hippocratic Oath of Product um, in a blog post that I wrote because what I was seeing was, you know, the way we build products is very much, um, it's a role that's very similar to what a doctor does. So for example, a doctor looks at, uh, you know, you go to a doctor, they look at you, they say, okay, I see you're sick. Uh, They don't just say, I'm just going to prescribe this for you. Whatever happens to you afterwards, that's your problem. They don't just blame it on you and say, oh, that's up to the user. And, you know, uh, that's they, they. A doctor who's treating you kind of has to take responsibility for your well-being overall. And so if we think about a product person, we're doing something very similar. So we look at a problem in the world that a user is having. And so we go in there and we say, okay, use this product and it'll fix that problem for you. But we can't walk away saying, well, you know, what happens to you after that? That's your problem, right? So that's where we also have to think about the user's well-being. And that's where the Hippocratic Oath of Product comes in. Um, I think until now, we haven't really needed the Hippocratic Oath until about, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Because what happened was uh, companies didn't have such a huge scale of influence. Um, you know, companies used to be, if we think about the 1900s, uh, companies were mostly local. Their reach was just around their own local area. Um, over time, that the pace at which companies are able to affect people's lives has just grown exponentially. Um, and in my book, I talk about, I show this chart where, you know, if you look at technology adoption in the 50 years in the early 1900s to the 50 years in the late 1900s, and then now in the 2000s, you can really see that exponential growth. Like with, just to give you an example, you know, it took Facebook two years to get to 50 million users. Um, TikTok in the same amount of time got to 500 million users. Um, When you see this pace of growth, it just means we affect so many more lives so much faster that unless we think about what's the world we're trying to create, unless we're thinking about user well-being, we're going to create tremendous consequences for people and for society, uh, you know, in the blink of an eye without realizing it. Definitely. And and this whole discussion around Hippocratic Oath is something that I could talk to you about for hours. So maybe that's another podcast episode at a later a later date. Going back to radical product thinking, how can we use that then to systematically build successful products and avoid these diseases and digital pollution? Yeah, so we talked about uh, vision first. Um, next comes a strategy that 
uh, is derived from this vision. Um, so strategy means understanding. So why is someone engaging with your product? Meaning what's the pain that makes them engage with your product? Um, what does your solution look like? Um, and then how will you deliver on the promise of that solution? Meaning what's the technical infrastructure or the relationships, the partnerships you need? And then finally thinking about your pricing model, your support, et cetera. That's, that's part of the last step, uh, which I call logistics of your product. And so there, uh, from your vision, you build a strategy. Um, and then, you know, one of the most important elements is even when you have a vision and strategy, how do you translate that into your priorities? Very often, that's where there's a break in the chain between vision and action. Uh, when the priorities kind of get taken over by short-term business needs, you know, when your boss says, oh, we need this, your CEO wants something else, and then your customers are asking for something else. So, the way I talk about priorities is uh, we have to think about your vision on your y-axis and survival as an x-axis. So things that are helping you both with vision and survival, those are, of course, you know, things that are ideal, right? Those are the easy decisions, like, duh, you should be doing them. But if you mostly focus on those, uh, it turns out you're still always focusing on what's helping you survive, right? And so sometimes we have to do things that are helping you with a vision, but it's not just, uh, it's not helping you short term. So those are the long term things, and I call it investing in the vision. So sometimes we really have to invest in the vision. And the opposite of investing in the vision is taking on what I call vision debt. And vision debt is like technical debt, um, except just like technical debt, it's even harder maybe to pay off um, because you cannot fire your customers, right? Um, you Once you've delivered something, you're kind of stuck with it. Uh, and this is where I was saying, you know, it's really hard to kill features. Um, so vision debt is basically where it's helping you survive, but it's not a good vision fit. Um, and so this is where you take it on very carefully, knowing that it's very hard to undo. And every time you do that, it takes you further away from your vision. And so in translating vision into action, we think about these priorities in these four quadrants, right? Which is taking on vision debt, investing in the vision, doing things that are ideal, or, you know, the other easy decision is not doing things that are bad for vision and bad for survival. That's like the danger zone and that's easy to avoid. But the point is that, you know, in translating vision, vision into action, we very carefully think about priorities along these quadrants and say, you know, what can we do to invest in the vision and avoid vision debt? And nothing is ever an absolute no-no. It's okay to take on vision debt sometimes. It's important to invest in the vision sometimes, but you can't do those things all the time. And so we very carefully translate vision into action through those priorities and talking about priorities. So the idea is that um, we talk about each of these elements and communicate that with our team um, and we translate that into then how do you also measure success so that's where measurement comes in um, and we take a more um, hypothesis driven approach to execution and measurement by saying okay for your vision and strategy if you treat them as hypotheses then all of what you're doing using lean and agile is proving or disproving those um proving or disproving those particular hypotheses. Um, so by taking this approach, we very systematically translate vision into activities. Fantastic. And your, pro your book, Radical Product Thinking, is coming out in September? Exactly, September 28th. Fantastic. So 
what can we expect from the book? You've gone into some great information around some of the areas that you you cover. What else can um, can we expect from your book? So in the book, um, it offers organizations and uh, product uh, leaders as well as founders. Um, it offers them a very practical and systematic guide for crafting a good vision, um, a strategy, translating it systematically into priorities, execution. Um, But it also contains a lot of things that we haven't talked about. So for example, how can you use some of these ideas to craft a culture that really makes it uh, easy for people to uh, collaborate better and build better products um, where there's psychological safety? Um, And then the last part of the book, I talk about uh, digital pollution and how we can avoid it. Um, So, yeah, it's both a big idea book, but at the same time, I've tried to make it really practical and easy to use. Um, And for that, I'm so grateful for my editor um, that we were able to translate so many of these concepts into things that make it an easy enough read um, with a lot of fun and interesting examples that are gathered from around the world. Amazing. I can't wait to read it. We can pre-order it now on Amazon. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Fantastic. Radhika, you've had such an amazing career and um, shared so many insights with us. What would you say has been your greatest achievement so far? Uh, I think probably I'd say writing this book has been one of those. Um, For me, you know, I'd never thought of writing a book until radical product thinking came along. And it's something I'm deeply passionate about. Um, But in terms of, you know, why I feel like this is an achievement for me, uh, I feel like it's, I've written the book, um, the kind of book that I would want to read um, in that it's, um, it's easy enough to read, but at the same time, like it's a lot of different aspects that, Um, that haven't really been covered in popular culture. Um, You know, concepts like digital pollution or, you know, how do we measure things? Why why OKRs are bad, for example, if we want to build good products sometimes? Why OKRs actually uh, are detrimental for good products? It's challenging a lot of um, conventional wisdom that's out there, to think about things in a new way. Uh, And that's proven based on research. And sometimes it's research that's often overlooked. Um, So it's based on this this scientific approach, plus a lot of uh, the personal experience that I've gained, um, and then having tested it out with many different companies and all of that pulled together into one book. So it's been kind of uh, a lot of years of uh, experience and research, et cetera, all combined into this one book project. And so uh, that's why it feels like such an achievement. Fantastic. And I love uh, the little controversial comment there around OKRs are bad for building products because the demand for OKRs and the adoption in Australia at the moment is is crazy. So um, I can't wait to read that section in the book. So I guess conversely, the flip side of that question, you know, what's been the biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome? Um, I think the biggest obstacle for me uh, was uh, when I was 12, we moved from India to South Africa. uh, And this was in 1991, which was right after the apartheid laws were abolished. Um, So I was the first non-white in my class, the second in the whole school. The school had just been opened up to non-whites the year I went there. 
Um, so why was it an obstacle? Because, you know, I was a really smart kid um, who was in this school. Um, but, you know, coming from a homogenous society like India to South Africa, where there was um, this blatant racism, right? Uh, it made it very hard to be okay with being myself. Um, and that was, you know, one of my uh, memories of that time was, I remember the teacher asked me to, to do a math problem and I went up to the board and did the math problem. And the teacher said it was wrong, although the answer was right. And another boy went up and did the um, same problem. Our answers were exactly the same. He used a different method, but his was called correct. And I remember being devastated by that when I came back home, you know. Um, but why why was that so hard? I think just because you kind of start to lose a bit of yourself uh, through these experiences. Um, and overcoming that meant saying, you know, um, taking on this fighter attitude that, you know, I'm not going to let that define me. Um, and, you know, it builds character in that it's made me so much more persistent. Um, and so, yeah, so those were some defining times in my life. Um, but I think it's been something that I look back on and I'm very happy to have overcome those obstacles. Um, it makes me also very sensitive to doing the right thing in terms of equity and equality now. Um, for example, in my book, um, I've made sure that my case studies and examples are really diverse. Um, I know that it's so tempting when writing books to only quote, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, the white males. Uh, in my book, I've very purposefully included examples that are really from around the world. Um, and one of my favorite examples is um, a company in India, which is called Lijit. It's not a company, it's actually an organization um, where it employs 45,000 women uh, and they're all equal partners. And it's such an amazing example of vision-driven products. Um, if you've, by the way, eaten papadams, which are lentil crackers in Indian restaurants, most likely you've tasted their products. Amazing. Wow. Radhika, it's been truly inspiring talking to you today. I, I could talk to you for hours on so many of these topics. Thank you so much for coming onto the Product Edge and sharing your insights and experiences with us. How can we stay connected with you going forward? Uh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be on this and chat with you. Um, to connect with me, I am readily available on LinkedIn, um, and I love hearing stories of people using radical product thinking. Uh, there are so often messages that I get, and these never get old, by the way, um, of people using radical product thinking and how it's helped them. Um, so that's probably one of the best ways to get hold of me, but uh, I'm also um, very active on my blog, which is on radicalproduct.com. Um, and the Radical Product Thinking Toolkit, by the way, we very purposefully, when we created that, we made it free. So it's uh, on um, the, the website, radicalproduct.com. Uh, and the toolkit is, um, you know, free to download because we want to make sure anyone who wants to create vision-driven change can do that. Fantastic. And I will include links to, to all of those um, mentioned there on our show notes. So it's easy for people to, to access. Lastly, Radhika, what would be one piece of advice you had have for product managers? So maybe just one thought is, you know, as a product manager, very often you get pulled into a very technical role, very administrative role. Um, and it's so easy to get sucked into that. Um, 
So one of the things I often share as a tip for product managers is, you know, when you start to dictate the vision for your product, and I don't mean that as a matter of dictate, but like when you help push for uh, setting the vision for your product and, you know, and you're not doing it by yourself, you do want a buy-in from the whole team. So you're doing it in a facilitative way. Um, it helps It helps you take on a more strategic role. So, you know, this process of whiteboarding your vision um, and doing, creating a strategy in this way uh, that's more collaborative or, you know, drawing up this two by two that I talked about in terms of priorities. All of those are techniques where you take on a more strategic role um, in the eyes of both your team and your organization. Um, and so I think as a product leader, the more you want to, you know, the more you want to level up, to level up, you really want to be able to um, do more of this communication and start taking on this strategic role and share your way of thinking with people so that you can get people to think like you, even when you're not around. So that's really the ultimate goal for a product manager. Fantastic. Radhika, you've been great. Thank you again for coming on to the Product Edge. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.